Well, good morning, church family. And grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, about 1.30 yesterday afternoon, I received a call from Pastor Scott. He let me know that he was feeling ill and would not be able to preach today. And so we'll not be in 1 Peter chapter 3. Instead, let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 42 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 851. And Pastor Scott, if you are watching the live stream this morning, I just want you to know that you're fired. (laughs) You are fired. I'm just kidding. We ought to begin in a word of prayer, though, and then we'll consider this text. Our Lord, we do give you our thanks for a beautiful Sunday morning. And Lord, we recognize that this turn of events was by your kind providence. But we ask that you would please bring Pastor Scott uh, to full strength once again, that you would give him patience as he endures this, this illness. Lord, we know that he would much rather be here. But this was your plan. So help him, Lord, to persevere through it. And then, Lord, I pray that you would also help me today. Please give me freedom of thought and of speech. And I pray that our time in this portion of your word would be profitable today. And please help all who have gathered here to listen to your word. Lord, help them to receive it with joy. Help them to find ways to apply its truths to their lives. Lord, may your spirit be working among all of us today, drawing us closer to your Son. Lord, please prepare us to receive the elements of bread and wine at the conclusion of this service. Lord, as we do so, again draw us closer to yourself. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So right from the start of his earthly ministry... Our Lord Jesus knew that he was heading toward the cross. In fact, this was the whole reason for his coming. The reason why the eternal Son of God put on human flesh and dwelt among us was so that he could go to the cross and offer himself as an all-sufficient atonement for our sins. And this was clearly on Jesus' mind every day of his earthly ministry. It comes up in his prayers, his teachings, in his private conversations with his disciples. Jesus knew that his life was marching toward the cross. But as the moment drew ever closer, we also see the weight of what was about to occur pressing down harder and harder upon Christ's shoulders until finally... In the Garden of Gethsemane, in those last hours before the crucifixion, it was almost too much for him to bear. And that's what our passage will show us this morning. Now, if you're not familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane, this was a beautiful garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. 
And this was a favorite place of Jesus and his disciples. We find him uh, with his disciples frequently throughout his earthly ministry. It was a, a very large garden, lots of mature olive trees. It provided them with a lot of shade, and it was a nice, quiet place for them to gather. And in today's text, we find Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane again. And he is only hours away from arrest. And so it is late on a Thursday night. Perhaps it's moving into the early hours of Friday morning. He and the disciples have had their Passover feast. Our Lord introduced the Lord's Supper to the disciples. They're in that upper room in Jerusalem. And so it's been a long day for everyone. And they're all exhausted. And so our Lord has led his disciples to the garden. Here he will instruct most of the disciples to get some rest. But he will also ask Peter, James, and John, the three who are closest to him, his closest friends, to stay up with him and to watch and to pray. This is where we pick up today's text. I want to draw our attention to three truths about Christ this morning. Three truths about his state of mind and the state of his will as he was heading into his crucifixion. First thing I want you to see this morning is that at the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the agony of Christ. We see the agony of Christ. Notice verses 32 and 33 with me. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John again, his, his closest friends. And then notice how his countenance changes. Suddenly alone with these three, says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So the cross has been on Jesus' mind for years, but now he is right on the cusp of his arrest. He is about to experience all of the horrors of the cross. And now it is all pressing in upon him. The text says that he was greatly distressed. Now the Greek word here means he was thrown into terror thrown into terror, and he was also greatly troubled. Now, there are three words in the Greek language to describe depression. This word is the strongest of the three, and it means that he was in great spiritual anguish. Friends, I don't think that any of us can truly understand exactly what our Lord was experiencing here in the Garden of Gethsemane, but perhaps, perhaps we've had a few life experiences that could at least give us an idea of what he might have been going through. Maybe you've experienced a panic attack. That happens when your body is so overwhelmed with anxiety that it becomes difficult to breathe. Your heart begins to pound. You break out into a, a cold sweat. Your, your vision becomes tunneled, and it's difficult to stand. Maybe you've had that experience before. Perhaps you also know the sorrow of receiving bad news. Maybe you've had this terrible experience of being in a doctor's office with someone you love. And the doctor comes back with the diagnosis, and they say, it's cancer, and it's terminal. Suddenly, the weight of grief begins to press upon you as you realize that your time on this earth with your loved one is drawing to a close. Well, friends, I believe that this is what Jesus was experiencing on that night in Gethsemane. As he pondered the, the cross, 
He was overwhelmed with emotion and it included, it included fear and it included grief and it was all mixed together and his whole countenance was changed. He was in terror. He was in anguish. Finally, he spoke up and he said this to his disciples, verse 34. He says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then he pled with them and he said, Remain here and watch. Jesus was experiencing a level of dread that was soul deep. So intense were his feelings that he thought the, the, the emotion itself might be enough to kill him. The sorrow might kill him before the cross. Verse 35 says that he finally collapsed to the ground. Luke's account adds another detail. It says he was sweating profusely. And then our Lord began to pray. It says he went a little farther into the garden, okay? He, he walked away from his, his three friends. He fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Then verse 36 gives us the exact language of his prayer. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Now here Jesus was drawing upon an Old Testament analogy. You see, in the Old Testament scriptures, God's righteous judgments against sin are sometimes compared to a bubbling cup of strong drink. And so we read in Psalm 75, verse 8, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And in Isaiah 51, verse 17, we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk down to the dregs of the bowl, of the cup of staggering. You see, the cup is an image of divine wrath. And this is what Jesus was about to endure on the cross. He was going to the cross in order to offer himself as an atonement for our sins. Later on, looking back on the cross, the Apostle Peter would say this, quote, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. You see, friends, the Scriptures teach that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And when the Bible speaks of death, it doesn't just mean the, the end of our, of our body, but it means judgment and hell. It means punishment that goes on forever and ever. The wages of sin is divine judgment. But because Christ loves us so much, he offered himself to God as a substitute. He offered to take all that our sins justly deserve, 
and he offered to take it all on himself. As the Son of God, he is a person of infinite worth. He could bear all of the sins for all of us upon his own shoulders himself. And because he had taken on human flesh, become a man, he could truly act as a substitute for us. You see, at the cross, Jesus was offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. His whole life long, Christ demonstrated an awareness of this coming reality. He spoke often about his coming death. In fact, the key, book, the key verse in the book of Mark says this, The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew exactly why he had come to earth. He knew what the cross was all about. In chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, we're told that our Lord set his face toward Jerusalem like a flint. Okay, he, was, he was determined to accomplish this good work. But now in the Garden of Eden, the weight of it all was finally crushing down upon Jesus. And in his humanity, it was almost too much for him to bear. He felt dread. He felt sorrow. He felt fear at what he was going to have to endure. You know, friends, reading about Jesus in the Gospels, we can sometimes have a view of him that it was all victory and all joy all of the time for Jesus. We see his miracles. We see his amazing debates with the scribes and the Pharisees and how he always bested his intellectual opponents. We, we hear the amazing sermons that he preached, and it seems like it was always about victory. Sometimes we forget that Jesus was also the man of sorrows. He was the man of sorrows from his conception all the way through to the cross. He lived in sorrow. Friends, think about what our Lord Jesus gave up when he came to earth. He was dwelling in heaven. He could not be touched by sin. He could not be touched by sickness. He could not die in heaven. In all day, every day, he basked in the love of his Father and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. He had the worship of the adoring angels and all of the saints who have gone before. They were all there with him in glory. But he gave it all up when he came to earth. He gave it all up. He robed his glory behind human flesh, lived in a cursed world, endured the mistreatment of men. And now here in Gethsemane, we find him just hours away from being arrested. The rest of that night and into the morning, he would be tortured with beatings. He'd be spit upon. A crown of thorns would be crammed onto his head. He would be flogged with a cat of nine tails, denied food and water. And then at nine o'clock on Friday morning, his hands and his feet would be nailed to a cross. And he would remain on that cross for six long hours until he would finally breathe his last. This is what he was about to experience. And he was doing it all for our sake, suffering in the place of sinners. Enduring the penalty that our sins deserve. Friends, Christ must have lived with a level of sorrow his entire 
life because of this, knowing what he was going to have to endure. In fact, maybe this is why there is no record of Jesus laughing or telling jokes in the Gospels. We find a whole range of emotions expressed, but we never find any, any lightheartedness on Jesus' part. Perhaps that's because the weight of the cross was on him his whole life long. He knew this is where it was headed. And now we see it reaching its culmination in Jesus as, as Jesus in his humanity is being oppressed at the feeling of what he is about to endure. Friends, at the cross we, in Gethsemane, that is, we see the agony of Christ. My friends, our salvation costs us nothing. We just receive the gift of God with repentant faith. But look at what it cost the Son of God. Look at the dread. Look at the grief that it cost Him. Friends, as we look at this scene from the Garden of Gethsemane today, I hope, I hope you can see how much you are loved. God the Father loves you so much that he was willing to part with his own dear son and to allow his son to go through all of this so that you could be redeemed, so that his own righteous judgments against your sin could be diverted to another. God the Father did that because He loves you. And I hope you can see how much the Son of God loves you too, that He would come into the world and, and be willing to endure all of this for you, and that He would go to the cross to redeem you from your sins. Friends, let this passage remind you of how much you are loved. Let it also give us a new loathing for our sins. I love this quote from the Puritan minister, Matthew Henry. He wrote, Can we ever entertain a favorable or so much as a slight thought of sin when we see the impression our sin made upon our Lord Jesus? Shall that sit light upon our souls, which sat so heavily upon his? Was Christ in such agony for our sins, and shall we never be in agony about them? See, friends, when we look in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see the emotions of Jesus as He contemplated our sins and what our sins deserve and what He would have to endure for the sake of our sins. How can we have any light view of our sins? How can we ever again look at an instance of unfaithfulness, of rebellion against God? How could we ever look at that lightly again? Friends, may this passage renew our resolve to wage war against our indwelling sin, to want nothing more to do with it, seeing the grief that it brought the Son of God. Friends, I hope this passage also helps to sweeten your own sorrows. See, whatever sorrow you may be going through today, understand that you are not alone. We Christians do not worship a God who is separated from our experience, one who, who, is, who is indifferent to our plight. No, we worship a God who came to earth in the person of His Son, who experienced every hardship that we do, and more so. 
And when we are experiencing sorrow in this world, we know that we can go to a God in prayer who understands our sorrows because the Son of God was the man of sorrows. We see him here collapsed upon the ground, sweating like drops of blood, crying out to his heavenly Father. When we pray to God, we're praying to someone who knows what it is like to experience fear and dread and grief. Friends, take comfort in that fact. Take comfort in the nearness of God to you in your great hardships. Then, friends, I hope this passage also makes the Lord's Supper more precious to us. Because in the Lord's Supper, we take a little bit of bread, a little bit of grape juice. The bread represents the body of Christ. The juice represents His blood. And as we partake of these elements together, our Lord calls us to remember His sacrifice for us. To remember that His body was broken, that His blood was shed for us. And here we see that this was no light thing. This was, this was a horror for Christ to endure. And yet He did it for us. Friends, the Garden of Gethsemane shows us the agony of Christ, but then secondly, it also shows us His resolve. Shows us His resolve. Notice the second part of verse 36. First part, He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. But now, listen to how He pivots. Next, He prays, Yet, not what I will, but what You will. Not what I will, but what You will. Here we see the complete submissiveness of Christ to His Father's will. See, in His humanity, He dreaded the cross. And yet, as the perfect man, He was also perfectly submissive to His Father. He was willing to endure the cross if this was the only way to secure our redemption. Friends, He was willing to submit Himself to the Incarnation to give up the glories of heaven, to become a man. He was willing to perfectly fulfill all of the righteous demands of God's law, earning the merit that we were incapable of receiving because of our sin natures. He was willing to fulfill all of the unique demands placed upon Him as the Messiah. Every type, every shadow, every prophecy in the Old Testament Scriptures concerning the Messiah, our Lord Jesus was willing to fulfill them all. And he was willing to go to the cross to bear the just judgments of God towards sin. To do this in our place. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, our Lord emphasizes the voluntary nature of his work. He said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Do you notice the wording there? Jesus says, nobody, nobody is compelling me to offer my life up. I am doing this because I want to do it, because I'm willing to do it. You see, friends, God the Father did not command God the Son to sacrifice His life for sinners. 
Rather, in eternity past, it went like this. God the Son said to the Father, Father, I am willing to redeem these sinners. I am willing to, for, to, to bear your judgments against their sins. I'm willing to save them. And God the Father said, okay. And he said, and as a reward for your work, I will give to you a kingdom and a bride that shall last forever and ever. The Father did not command the Son to give up His life. The Father and the Son consented together in a wonderful agreement that this is how our salvation would be secured. Nobody compelled Christ to give up His life. He offered Himself willingly and completely. God's reward will be a kingdom and a bride. Friends, I hope you've not lost the wonder of this fact. Christ offered himself as a volunteer. Despite knowing how undeserving we all are, despite knowing how terrible his sufferings would be, he still volunteered. Friends, that should make us feel very grateful to Christ. Grateful that he should take this on for us when he did not have to. It should also motivate us to voluntarily and without need for coercion to devote our lives to Him. We ought to be prepared to stand on the mountaintops and to say, Christ died for me, so I will live for Him. It's what He deserves. It's what I want Him to have because of His sacrifice. I want Him to have all of me. Friends, here in Gethsemane, we see the agony of Christ. But we also see his resolve to go to the cross for us. And thirdly and finally, in Gethsemane, we see the uniqueness of Christ. See the uniqueness of Christ to secure our salvation. Listen as I read verses 37 to 42. It says, And he came and he found them sleeping. That is, Peter, James, and John. He asked them to stay awake and to pray. They're sound asleep. He found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Verse 41, and he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed at the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See? Now he's pointing to Judas and the soldiers coming his way. See? My betrayer is at hand. My friends, what we see in these verses is the incredible contrast between Jesus and and his disciples. Jesus understands the significance of this moment, but they do not. He stays up all night to commune with God, but they sleep through the night. He is spiritually alert, but they are spiritually dull. And friends, these are the best disciples that Jesus has got. Peter, James, and John, it doesn't get any better than these men. But look at the contrast 
between Jesus and them. What becomes clear in this passage is that Christ truly was the only one who could be our Messiah. He is absolutely unique in his person. Fully God, fully man, two natures united together in the one person. Nobody else has the identity of Christ. But we also see the uniqueness of his resolve. He was ready, willing, and able to go to work for us, to offer himself as an all-sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He was the only one fully cognizant of the need for such a sacrifice for our redemption. While others were sleeping their night away, he was up praying and drawing strength for what was about to happen to him. See, friends, to be a human post-fall is to be in a state of spiritual lethargy, just like these disciples. So often we don't understand the seriousness of things. We don't understand the weightiness of heaven and hell and of sin and righteousness and judgment. We don't understand the weight of any of this. To be a human post-fall is to be in desperate need, therefore, of Christ, who is able, willing, and prepared to make atonement for our sins. And friends, this is why it is incumbent upon all of us to put our faith in Christ. There's nothing that we can do to earn our own redemption. We are fallen into this condition of sin. We are spiritually dull. We do not even understand in our natural selves, we do not understand our need for redemption. We need Christ. We need Christ to do this for us. We need the grace of God in Christ to awaken us to our true spiritual condition. And we need the atonement of Christ to cancel out that record of sin and to give us a righteous standing before God. We need Christ. We need to believe in Christ. You know, the scriptures say an amazing thing to us. They, they tell us that when we come to God through Christ in repentant faith, a spiritual bond forms between the believer and Christ. And it works almost like a marriage. You know, in a marriage you have a, a bride and a groom who pledge faithfulness to one another. And after the vows are completed, those two people become legally one new entity. One new entity. Such that all of the debts of one now are the property of the other. And all of the riches of the one also belong to the other. They are one. Well, this is what happens in our transaction with Christ. When we come to Him in repentance and faith, confessing our sin, claiming His all-sufficient sacrifice, a bond is formed. It's like a marriage. That's why the Scriptures say Christ is like a groom and His church is a bride. It's like a marriage. A spiritual bond takes hold. So that now our debt of sin is His. And His all-sufficient atonement for sin is ours. His perfect righteousness is ours. It's ours by love and by law. 
And this is what gives us a new righteous standing before God. He sees us as we are united to His Son, Jesus Christ. He sees, therefore, all sins paid in full. He sees perfect righteousness. Friend, if you have not done so yet, let me implore you, implore you, to come to Christ in faith. He is what you need more than anything else. It isn't more money, more obedient children, a bigger house, a better car, um, better co-workers, as nice as all of those things would be, those are not the greatest need. The greatest need that we have is the need for redemption, for the need of our sins to be wiped away, for our alienation with God to be, to be resolved so that we now can have fellowship with God. That's what we need, and that's what Christ provided for us. Christ provides for us life and salvation itself. Friends, as we ponder our need, as we ponder what Christ has offered to us, what he's done for us, let us go to him in, in prayer. Our Lord, we do thank you so much for this passage and for the opportunity that it gives us to see the humanity of Jesus, to see his fear and his sorrow, his grief, his dread, as he contemplated the cross, but also to see his absolute resolve that, that though he was sorrowful unto death, yet he would persevere through that, right on to the cross, that he would complete his work, that atonement would be made, that life would be available to us, reconciliation could be secured. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for this scene that shows us not just his agony, but his resolve and his uniqueness to do this work. Lord, truly we see that even the best disciple is, is far below, far below Christ. In our persons, we are not like him. In our character, we are not like him. So often spiritually dull. Lord, please help us. Help us to resolve, to be faithful to him. Lord, if, if anyone here has not embraced your son yet with, with wholehearted, repentant faith, and Lord, draw them to yourself now. Open up their hearts. Make them receptive to your great gift. Let them be named among your disciples. And by your grace, grow in their daily commitment to you. And for all of us, Lord, as we prepare to partake of the bread and to drink from the cup, help us to be so grateful for your great sacrifice. Lord, might your spirit be working in us as we partake, such that our affections for you are renewed this day. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
invite you to stand with me as we respond to this message and in advance of our communion observance we'll be singing all five verses of hallelujah what a savior together, so I'd like to ask our ushers if they would please come forward. If you're here today and you're a Christian, we invite you to partake of these elements. If you've not yet done business with Christ, then I would ask you to do this instead. As the elements pass by, instead of picking up the bread and the cup, let me ask you to simply bow in prayer and receive Christ by faith. And as the others think back to the time when they received Him and they rejoice in their union with Him, would you receive Him for the first time? And then next quarter when we celebrate this supper again, you'll be able to partake as a true born-again disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's what the Scriptures say to us. They say that on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, He first took bread and then He gave thanks. I'd like to ask Scott Williquid if he would please take the microphone and give thanks for the bread before us today. Lord, thank you so much for all you have done for us. We crucified you, we beat you, we shed your blood, and you have forgiven us of that. 
and you have saved us so that we can join you forever in heaven. Thank you so much for all you have done to us. I pray, Lord, that you impress that upon us today as we partake in the bread and the cup. And thank you so much, Lord, for forgiving us of our sins. In your name, amen. Jesus broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The scriptures tell us that in the same way, our Lord also took the cup and gave thanks. I'd like to ask Andrew Long if he would take the microphone and give thanks for the cup before us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity of corporate worship with fellow believers. Uh, we just ask that you would help us to remember the sacrifice that your son gave to us. We thank you for that sacrifice. Um, we know that he was completely undeserving of it, and uh, he still took on your wrath for us in our place. We just pray that we'd remember that um, more than just on our quarterly communion. <coughs> um, we ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 